My name is Yitzhak Et Shalom, and I'm honored to be part of this marathon of light uh, to chase away a lot of darkness that we really have in all parts of the Jewish world. Um, and I'm honored also to be teaching from Malon Shvut right now, where I've come to visit, as Shoshana said so beautifully at the end of her presentation, uh, to come to visit, to give chizuk, but also to get chizuk. Um, and the topic that I'd like to look at is the is something that directly impacts on our understanding of this week's parasha, the story of Yaakov and his wives and his children. And it is the challenge of unity in Yaakov's household, Achdut Bevet Yaakov, uh, which is a challenge that, of course, we face and something that I think we are all cognizant of uh, has been issues that have been brewing within our world over the last few years and that seem to be at least temporarily uh, put away and put aside, hopefully, for us to all work together for the common good. Uh, but I'd like to take a look at this in a more, shall we say, antiseptic way, uh, looking at the way that the Torah deals with this problem and um, and we see in our history. Uh, and I'd like to start with two quotes, not from our parasha, but rather from the perhaps most well-known text that we have as Jews, which is Haggadah Shal Pesach. Um, just one note, a plug for the Haggadah, is uh, there are probably more commentaries on the Haggadah than any other book that we have. Uh, the shelf of Haggadot in a good library is uh, is maybe two shelves or three shelves, and anybody who's, any, who's anybody has written a commentary on the Haggadah uh, because of the centrality of the experience of the Seder. And in the Haggadah, we read the following paragraph, which is, the way we present it is two paragraphs, but it really is one. And I'm using here the Nusach of the Rambam, uh, and I'll explain why in a second. Baruch Shomer Haftachatoli Yisrael Baruch Hu, Shakadosh Baruch Hu Mechashev Etakets. Most of us have the Nusach in our Haggadot, Shakadosh Baruch Hu Chishev Etakets, and it turns this entire story about something that happened once in the past, and we regard it as being about Yitziat Mitzrayim, but the Nusach of the Rambam and many other Rishonim is Mechashev Etakets, which makes it about an ongoing reality that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is always calculating the end. I'm going to be using the Mechashev approach uh, in order to address this. In order for Hashem, Hashem to fulfill that which he promised Avraham at the Brit Ben Abitarim in Breshit Tadbav, Shinemar, and we then quote the first two of the four Psukim of the Brit. Now, the, the oomph of that statement is, Avram, you should know that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. They'll be enslaved, they'll be oppressed for a very long time. And the nation that oppresses them or that enslaves them will I, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, judge, and they will leave with great wealth. And we read this entire piece as being about Yitziat Mitzrayim, although, as again, the Nusach Mechashev means that it's part of an ongoing cycle of Jewish history. And this is followed up with the line that comments on that Brit, Ki That Brit is what stood for our ancestors and for us, again, it is an ongoing cycle. As we see today, 
that there are people who stand over us and try to destroy us, totally obliterate us. saves us. Now, the traditional or the conventional understanding about what the referent of he is, is that God will eventually uh, judge the nation that oppresses us, and we will leave with great wealth, and that as we endured, so we will prosper and we will be redeemed and be saved. We will later on visit another approach of this, of understanding what the he is. But I want to then move to a more direct line in the Haggadah, which begins the real core of Magid. It introduces it, and it is the famous Midrash of Aramio Vedavi, which is introduced with the following line. Seumad, which is a rabbinic idiom for to investigate, what was it that Lavan wanted to do to Yaakov? Paro only wanted to kill the males, meaning in the original decrees of infanticide, it was about killing the boys and not the girls. Lavan wanted to uproot everything. Now, where do we find that Lavan wanted to uproot everything? In the famous standoff that takes place at the end of this week's parashat on Har HaGilad, when Lavan faces off against Yaakov and says to him, I could have hurt you, but your God appeared to me last night and told me that I can't speak ill or even good to you. Um, and then they fight, they negotiate, but Lavan doesn't do anything to Yaakov. Well, what was it that Lavan was threatening to do to Yaakov? At the most, it was to hurt Yaakov, maybe to kill Yaakov, but to do something to his own children and his own grandchildren, the opposite. That's exactly what the tone of his complaint is. These are my children. These are my grandchildren. You took them away from me. Instead of having a farewell party, etc. To think that Lavan's intent was to wipe out his entire family, his progeny, at that point is kind of strange. So I'd like to make a, a different suggestion about what Lavan Bikesh La'akor et akol might mean. In order to understand that, we have to take a look at the events that take place at the core of this week's parasha, which is Yaakov's marrying Leah and then Rachel. And we want to see a little bit of background with that. Now, there's a particular challenge that comes up because of Yaakov marrying two sisters, which is if you take the approach which is an agotic approach suggested in the Mishnah at the end of Kiddushin, and it is an approach taken by several Rishonim, which is that the Avot were careful to observe all the laws of the Torah, uh, even before it was given, either as Enomit Suvevo says, a voluntary act, or in some other form. There is a problem because marrying two sisters is a very clear and serious prohibition of the Torah, as you see in Source 3. You may not take a woman and her sister, and then there's a unique word used here to describe what that relationship would be like, to create enmity. And as Rashbam explains, what does mean? Referring to Pnina and Chana as Sarot, right? which is two women married to the same man are enemies. That's the way it is. And then the Bechor Shor, in his commentary here, talks about the grievousness of the prohibition of Yishayel Achotah, because he says, Davar Kashehu, in Source 5, Two sisters who otherwise love each other. 
When you bring the second one into your household, and now they're going to be enemies, because naturally, two co-wives are enemies, and now you take your sisters, who otherwise loved each other, and you turn them into enemies, they fight with each other, etc. And, and he points out why the prohibition exists, even if you divorce one, you can't marry the other one, and he goes into the, into the, into the details of that. So this, this awful situation, and then Yaakov, Avinu is marrying two sisters, which leads Ramban to his famous comment, which is that the Avot kept the Torah uncommandedly, but only in Eretz Yisrael, which is why he said Rachel had to die, Rachel being the second of the sisters to marry, had to die when they entered the land. There's a lot of difficulties with that Ramban, but that's his approach, because he's again taking this. Now, those who are not bothered by the notion that the Avot kept the Torah, except those things which they were commanded, like Shav Mitzvot and Milah, and perhaps Gidon Hashem, uh, would then not be bothered by this issue. Um, uh, and we're going to see yet another comment, another approach to trying to sort of justify this relationship. But the point that the Bechor Shor makes is very powerful, is that inherently having two wives is going to create enmity. And creating enmity when there's already all of the psychological baggage that any siblings carry is just horrendous. And you see that the first point in, in a famous parasha in, uh, in Pasha Kitetse, right after the introductory fatoar, the next parasha is exactly a parasha about a man who's married to two wives. It says, in source six, so a man has married to two wives, and one is, literal translation, is beloved and one is hated. Now, it's very hard for us to, to, uh, to tolerate that as a translation, because why is a man married to a woman that, he's hate, that he hates? So we could make the argument that this is a mefuta or an anusa or somebody who was forced to marry, and he can never divorce her, and he's stuck with her, perhaps. But we find in many places in the Torah, that the word, and including in our parasha, that the word ohev and sone, or ahuv and sanu, beloved and, as we'd say, hated, uh, whenever it is in a multiple relationship, meaning one and another, ohev et zev et it really isn't best translated as love and hate, but rather prefer and prefer less, or love and love less. And some of the Rishonim say that immediately about leah. Um, that uh, and you see that, for instance, in the introduction uh, to the uh, to the wives of Yaakov and Esav, when we hear about their the their relationship of their parents to them, really must be translated as Yitzchak favored Esav and Rivka favored Yaakov. We don't find any reason to say that one of them didn't have love for the other child, but they had more love for one. They had a preference for one. So here we'd best read it as a man has two wives. One of them is more beloved and one of them is less beloved. And let's just for the heck of it, give them some names. Uh, just to make this easier, we'll say that there's a man whose name is Jay. And he's married to two women. One whose name is, let's say, Rocky, who he likes a lot. And one he likes a little bit less, whose name is, let's say, Lee. All right. And both Rocky and, and, and Lee um, birth him children. And it turns out that Lee has the older child. We'll call him Ruby. Right? And in the meantime, Rocky, who he loves more, has a child later on who we'll call Jojo. I'm just making up names out of the air. 
When it comes time for him to give his estate over, which essentially when he dies, he's not allowed to favor the child of the beloved one who is not the Bechor over the child of the less beloved one who is the Bechor. In other words, he can't give the Bechorah to Jojo, he has to give it to Ruby. And this is the Dean of Pishnaim, of a double portion of the inheritance. The law of the Bechorah belongs to the one who is really the firstborn child, even though his mother is less beloved. Now this, of course, seems to be, and you could tell by the names that I was using, seems to be directly responding to the story of Yaakov himself. Yaakov has two wives who are described as Ahuvan Snua. And they both give him sons. And the son of the Snua is Ruvain, and the son of the of the Amuva is Yosef. And take a look how the Vrehamin by Cheney period justifies Yaakov giving the Bahorah to Yosef in seeming violation of this law. In describing, the, in, in presenting the genealogy of all of the tribes, in introducing Ruvain, Ruvain is introduced as follows. He's the Bechor. No question. But when he violated his father's bed, in other words, the incident with Bilhah, the Bechorah was taken away from him and given to the children of Yosef. Not to say that they really are the Bechorah, are the Bechor, but rather the rights of, of Bechorah were given to him, which leaves the Sforno to make the following comment using this pasuk. Uh, that is, this is the Sforno's comment on our parasha in Tvarim. Meaning, he cannot transfer the Bechorah because he favors one wife over the other. But if, on the other hand, he transfers it, not because of his love for one mother over the other, but he transfers it because of the bad behavior of the child himself, then it's appropriate to switch it. And this he quotes the Gemara in the eighth parak of Bhavabhatra, which is, If the Bechor, who is the child of the less favored wife, is behaving badly, then, um, then uh, it, it, the father should make that uh, transfer, and uh, and Adraba, the father is the is is praised for doing that. And now Sforno brings it around to that's what Yaakov did, and he quotes the pasuk in Divrei In other words, Sforno is bothered by this problem, which is. You're not allowed to favor the child of the beloved wife if he's not really the Bechor and give him the rights of the Bechor or the financial uh, status of the Bechor. Unless, based on what we see here in Divrei Amin, the child himself, the Bechor himself, behaves badly and isn't an appropriate heir to that status, then it, it's, it should be transferred and Yaakov indeed did the right thing to hand it over to Yosef. Looking at all of this, though, we see brewing in the relationship that Yaakov had with his wives, just all of the recipe for disunity, all of the recipe for jealousy and, dare I say, hatred. And we see it bubble up to the top, of course, and we're going to take a look at that. But I want to contrast that with something that happens a generation earlier. 
and actually two generations earlier. Off of our text, we have Avraham. Avraham is monogamous. Avraham marries Sarai, and we already hear in the end of Noah, Sarai Akarai in Lavalad, Sarai doesn't have any children. Hashem tells Avraham, you go, you go to the land I'll show you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And Avram takes Sarai with him, and at no point does Avram seem to even suggest, certainly does not act on taking a second wife or divorcing Sarai and having a wife in order to fulfill that great destiny of having a, a great nation. Instead, he is loyal to Sarai. And the only time that we know of, and the only reason to think that there is or any other times that Avraham tries to have children with anyone else is at Sarah's insistence. And notice how the text in Breshit Tetzayin presents it. By Yishma, Avram calls Sarai. Avram obeys Sarai and does exactly what she asks, takes Hagar, impregnates her, and as soon as Hagar acts the way she does and Sarai gets angry, Avram hands her back. Avram is supremely loyal to Sarai. We then turn to Yitzchak, and here's Yitzchak, who is Bizaracha. He is the one who's going to carry on that great bracha of a great nation and of inheriting the land. And he marries one girl, Rivka. And for the next 20 years, they have no kids. And Yitzchak davens, Yitzchak prays, Yitzchak does whatever he can, and finally they have two kids. We don't hear Yitzchak taking another wife. We don't hear Yitzchak trying to increase his chances. Because as you can see, monogamy really is the ideal. Even though polygamy is technically permitted, and there's also social, socioeconomic reasons for it, etc., and, and political reasons, nonetheless, that seems to be the model. Both Avraham, and only after the death of Sarai does he marry Keturah. And even that, unclear if it's actually marriage, or Pilegesh, unclear in the text. And here we have Yaakov. And by the way, before we get to Yaakov, Notice what the text says about Esav. And this is part of what perhaps gives us a bad feeling about Esav already early on in the text, which is Esav, right away when he marries, marries two women. It's not as even as if Esav marries a woman and he's not able to have kids with her, but he's loyal to her, so he has a second wife. He marries two women. The fact that they're both chitiot may be significant, maybe not. But the text tells us the following. Source 10. They were a source of bitterness to Yitzchak and Rivka. Why were they a source of bitterness? The text doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us that because they're chitiot, doesn't tell us that they're obdeot, avodazara, both of which are suggestions raised by the Midrashim. The simplest read of it is, why did Esau take two wives? And what becomes further complicated is that when Esau sees at the end of last week's parasha that his parents are unhappy with his wives, instead of divorcing them, seemingly, he takes a third wife, which is Machalat Bat Ishmael, because Esau evidently interprets his parents' disfavor as being, well, you don't have anyone from the family. They're all from these Kanani. So go take somebody from Avraham's family, so it's Machalat Bat Ishmael, your first cousin. Okay. But that doesn't seem to be the, the direction that, you, that you're supposed to go in. And if you recall, just before that pasuk, what did Yitzchak tell Yaakov to do? Go to Lavan and take one of his daughters as a wife. That's what Yaakov is off to do. Parenthetically, just because I want to close the circle on Esav, if you take a look at the end of Pashat Vayishlach, 
and you see the genealogy of Esav, his wives, his children, Esav, etc., you see something curious happen. And that is that Esav has three wives, as we saw in Toledot, but they don't have the same names. We have instead of um, of uh, Basmat Batelon, it's Adab Batelon. And instead of Machalat uh, Pat Yishmael, it's suddenly Basmat Pat Yishmael. And then there's a third woman in there who comes out of nowhere, seemingly, who is evidently part of his attempt to assimilate into the Seir population, which he ultimately conquers. So Esav, how many wives does he really have? According to the Ramban, he actually had six. According to others, he had five. Some say he had four. And then Rashi says it's the same three and the names got switched. There's different approaches to understanding that. But it's almost as if you could see, here's Esav, who we already see as rejected. Esav is already the one who's not going to be the one to continue. Esav doesn't know that. Yitzchak doesn't know that for a while. But we know that. We know that already from the moment of Rivka's Nivuah. And we see Esav's being wives. On the other hand, what do we expect of Yaakov? So now let's take a look at the story in the middle of this week's partial. We'll slow it down a little bit and take a look because this story is troubling. On the other hand, Parshanut-wise, it's just delightful and is a text to analyze. So the, the setup is that Yaakov, of course, is sent away by his father to go to Haran to find a wife. Um, Rivka's purpose in getting him to Haran is, at least partially, to escape the anger of Esav. And he comes to Haran, and he meets some fellows by the well, and he has a conversation with them, and uh, he sees Rachel, and he gets very excited about it. And Rachel comes and tells her father, who's here, and Lavan brings him into the house. And uh, and father says, and Lavan says to him, uh, "You're my family. You'll stay here." So he works for him for thirty days, and then Lavan says, "Listen, I you're, I can't ask you to work here for free. What do you want as payment?" And here we go. Lavan Shtevanot. We're going to take look at this in depth. This week's parsha. Lavan Shtevanot. Lavan has two daughters. Now, by the way, which daughter did Yaakov already meet? He met Rachel. He met her a month ago. And Rachel is evidently a young girl, and she's out shepherding what seems to be a very small flock. One girl shepherding, one young girl shepherding a flock, it's probably a small group. And immediately we're wondering, well, if he doesn't have enough money to hire shepherds, maybe he has a very small flock, why is the younger girl out there shepherding a flock? We're going to find out in a minute. Leah has soft eyes. Now, we, are, we all grew up with Rashi and Katsarichliot. And we all grow up with Rashi saying that Leah had washed out eyes. She was unattractive. She was always crying because she was upset because everybody was saying she'll marry Esav, etc. But most of the Rishon go in the opposite direction. They take the approach that Rachel had, Leah had very soft eyes, very pretty eyes. She was what we might call a girly girl. And indeed, that's part, that's the reason that she was not sent out to be the shepherdess because she really couldn't be outside too much. Rachel is presented here a little bit more of a tomboy. Rachel maret. And now watch what happens. Now again, here, it's a little bit hard to say he's in love with this girl. What does he know about her? Seems like he prefers Rachel. Remember, what was he sent to do? He was sent to marry a wife. And so he sees these two girls and he prefers Rachel. 
Vayomer, what does he say to Lavan? Evodcha sheva shanim brachel bitcha haketana. So he says, I'll work for you for seven years for Rachel. Now, why would he say seven years? Um, the simplest explanation would be that Rachel was actually very young and was approximately seven years away from marriageable age. Nobody got married, not betrothed, but married in the ancient world before around the onset of puberty. So she was a young girl and he favored Rachel. And he says, okay, I'll work for seven years and then it'll be time for her to get married. Of course, assuming that by that time, her older sister Leah would be married. And uh, as we know, that doesn't happen. So what does Lavan say? He begrudgingly sort of agrees to it. Now, is this a strategy where really he's happy about it, but doesn't want to appear happy, or is he really not so happy with it? In any case, Yaakov goes to work for him, and Rachel is the promised girl. And by the way, we have no idea how much interaction or contact Yaakov had with anyone in the household over these next seven years. We know from ancient herding contracts that that uh, herding, just like we remember from old cowboy movies, herding was something that took months, and sometimes people were gone from their house for months at a time um, herding. So it wasn't as if Yaakov was living in the house the whole time. So we don't know how much contact he had, which will play a role in what we in what we deal with later. Um, so what happens? So Yaakov works for Rachel for seven years. And this is a very difficult pasuk to read straight up, because we all know that when you're anticipating something, longing for something, it seems as if it stretches forever. Think about watching the clock on the last day of school in June and watching the minutes tick off. It seems to take forever, right? as opposed to the clock on the first day of school in September, speeding up to get there. Um, and uh, But nonetheless, the text says it was as if it was just a few days because he was so enamored with her uh, and with Rachel and anticipating getting married to her. Okay. And now, So Yaakov comes up to Levan after the seven years and says, let me have my wife. My days have done, meaning I've completed my, my, in my servitude, as it were. And I want to come to her. This doesn't have to be, have to be read only euphemistically as relations, it could mean just to come and join her in the house. In any case, Vyasof Lavan, and this is where things get really tested. Vyasof Lavan had called Shem Akom Vyas Mishter. So Lavan gathers the whole, everybody from the town, and makes a party. Why? Because that's what you do when somebody gets married, you make a party. Now, there's several things that we have to picture here. And again, an important rule in narratives, narrative is when you're reading a narrative, you have to be inside the story in order to see what's happening and fully appreciate the nuances of the text. So it's now evening, and Lavan takes Leah and brings her to Yaakov, and Yaakov has relations with her, which means where was Leah during the wedding feast, which taking place in the afternoon or in the evening before nighttime, before the end, before she comes in. So we have to assume here that there's a separate party for the women, or Leah's in some room getting prepared or something, and Rachel's with her, evidently, or not part of the party. The party's mainly only for men. And so Yaakov has no idea who this is going to be. As we know, he will expect it to be Rachel. And at night, when it's dark, and there's no lights, and perhaps, as Chazal say, out of a measure of sniut, or just pragmatically, they didn't have any lights in the room, so this girl is brought in, and uh, perhaps as some say she had a, a veil on or something, and therefore 
he couldn't really see her face. Um, and uh, and it's and it's Leah, and Yaakov lies with her. So the Shonin point out, Bashor, for instance, points out this shows Yaakov's theut. He didn't engage in chatter with her um, uh, because then otherwise he would have recognized from her voice that she is Leah and not Rachel. Um, perhaps. On the other hand, maybe he hasn't really heard either of their voices for the last seven years so much, and maybe he wouldn't recognize it. And a girl's voice certainly changes from the time that she's a young girl until she's of marriageable age. So we don't know. In any case, Yaakov has relations with Leah in the dark. And somehow, at this point in the text, Zilpah, which is Leah's personal handmaid, is handed over from Lavan, and now given unto the possession of and the ownership, the control of Leah. And here we go. Vahiva Boker. What happens in the morning? Vihine in, in Tanakh is a surprise. Behold, it's Leah. He opens his eyes and it's Leah. Now notice, Yaakov, just like Sarah in her time, when, when Sarah was angered by Hagar, she didn't say anything to Hagar. She said she got angry at Abraham. When, um, when uh, Yaakov is angry because this is Leah, he doesn't get angry at Leah. He gets angry at Laban. And so what happens? What did you do? Now, here's why I want to stop for a moment. What Yaakov says is, I worked for Rachel, why did you trick me? Now, question number one is, is there really deceit here? Question two is, if there's deceit, who's in on the deceit? Now, we're all familiar with the famous Midrash, that when Yaakov and Rachel first met, Yaakov said, I want to marry you. And Rachel said, yes, but father's tricky. And Yaakov gave Rachel a secret sign or some sort of code. And that Rachel, before the wedding, said, oh, Leah, my sister, is going to be mortally embarrassed when she, when Yaakov asked for the code. She has no idea what he's talking about. And therefore, I'm going to give up my opportunity here by giving the simanim to Rachel, there's a few versions of that story, but that's the, the kind of the nut of it, uh, to give it to Leah so that when Yaakov is with her alone, she'll be able to say the code word, she'll think it's me, etc. question is, how does that conversation go on? What's Rachel's motivation? And all the nuschot is, I don't want my sister to be embarrassed. So how, does that, how do we picture that conversation going? Is that a conversation where Rachel says to Leah, listen, I happen to know that men from Canaan, when they have their first relationship, you know, this is what they say, not likely. So the only way we kind of picture this is for Rachel to come to Leah and say, listen, he's really expecting me, and we have a little code. I'm going to tell you the code so you don't get embarrassed. But isn't that itself very embarrassing? And we're going to see later on in the text that that position really can't be upheld in the text. So we have the following question. How many people were involved and aware of this quote-unquote deception? And I say quote-unquote deception because it may not be the case. But let's think, let's think about it. We know for sure that Levan had to be aware that it was Leah coming in and that Yaakov expected Rachel. We know that Yaakov didn't know about it. So really the question is, what about Leah and Rachel? Did they know about it? So the truth is, there's good, good reason to think that neither one of them knew about it. Rachel did not know that Yaakov had bargained for her trough. He did not know that, that that Yaakov, she did not know that we don't ever hear that them in the same context where Yaakov says to Levan, I'll work for seven years for Rachel. And so here we are, and take a look at the way that, that uh, Levan responds. 
Vayomer Lavan lo yasa chen bin komeno. We don't do things like that here. Notice that when Yaakov accuses Lavan of, of rumiyah, of deception, Lavan doesn't respond to the deception claim. He blows it off by saying, you're in the wrong place. We don't do things like that here. To let the younger girl get married before the older girl. And by the way, if you think about it, there's a little bit of Musar in there saying, we don't do things like that in our place. Maybe where you're from, you pretend to be your older brother and you steal brachot and you disguise. We play it straight here. The older comes first. And therefore, there's no way in the world that I could marry Rachel off before Leah. What, seven years ago, you said? Who knows? Seven years ago, Leah would still be single or whatever. And so the question is really, is this a deception? Or is this Yaakov not paying attention to what's going on around him, being aware that she has an older sister, not thinking, well, this older sister is not married. How's that going to look? And it's very possible that Rachel was not aware of this, and Leah was not aware of this. And Leah was just told, here's Yaakov has been working for seven years. You are the promised bride. You go marry him. And Rachel doesn't know that she's been pushed out of the way or that and or nor she contributed to. Let's see how that how that plays out. But either way, what we have now is Yaakov married to the sister that he doesn't want, staying on the property, and there's the sister that he does want right nearby. So Lavan anticipates that and immediately says, Malesh Vuazot, give this one her week, meaning the, the tradition. Having a seven-day celebration for a marriage is something that is ancient. And we see that it was practiced here. So Leah gets her week. Give her her week of celebration. And then you can marry the other one. And notice he says, Zot, Zot, this one and that one doesn't even use their names. Not, not, nice, not nice on Levan's part. For the work that you do for me for another seven years. Now, from Lavan's perspective on the spot, what's happening? Lavan is essentially taking advantage of Yaakov's weakness. Yaakov really wants Rachel. Yaakov is a great worker, and as Lavan will say later on, Yaakov being in Lavan's household has increased his portfolio greatly. If, ya if Lavan can get another seven free years out of Yaakov, meaning he doesn't have to pay him anything, and seven years of work, that's going to be wonderful for him. So whether or not he deliberately planned this with getting Leah and knowing that Yaakov would stick around for another seven years for Rachel, or seeing Yaakov's reaction, he on the spot comes up with this, he has made a good deal. By the way, that should not be too foreign to us, because you think about the way that Yaakov took advantage of Esau's hunger in getting the Bechorah from him. Now, before you yell at me, which well, muted so you can't, but think about this. In the, um, there's a famous Midrash, I'll show it to you here in the, in the, there's a famous Midrash uh, in Breshit Rabbah about when Yaakov wakes up in the morning and sees it's Leah. So in the text, the first conversation he has is with Lavan, but in the Midrash he has a conversation with Leah and he's angry at her. And he says to her, Midrash Rabbah on the spot, says, you deceitful girl, daughter of deceitful father. The whole night I was cooing Rachel, Rachel, and you were saying yes, yes. And she essentially turns to him and says, big shot. And the whole time your father was saying, Esav, Esav, and you were saying yes. It's a very powerful statement that Chazal constantly see within the book of Bereshit, Midah, Kenegad, Midah. And what you put out there comes back to you. And perhaps that's also what happens when Yaakov took advantage of Esav's hunger, and now Levan is taking advantage of, of Yaakov's desire and getting out of the seven years for me. But in any case, what happens as a result? We now have two sisters married to the same guy. 
Remember what we said about that at the beginning of the shiur. And what that is a recipe for is a destruction in the family. Terrible destruction. And we see it almost come to that later on. We'll take a look at that. We'll take a look at that quickly. And watch how even on an emotional level, at the beginning of this complex relationship, things bubble over. And so, he gives Leah a week, and then, and then, and Bilah comes along, and here we go, so he also has relations with Rachel, but he, he prefers Rachel to Leah. Anyway, it wasn't just at the beginning when there were two young girls. Now that he's married to both, he prefers Rachel to Leah. By the way, that's inevitable. There's no way a man's going to be married to two women and have exactly 50% of his attention and his and his love, everything to divide it between them. He's going to prefer one over the other. And then he works for another seven years to pay off Rachel. Now, what happens? Again, that word. God sees that Leah is not preferred. And what does he do to give her a leg up? He opens her womb. Meantime, Rachel doesn't have kids. Now, parenthetically, in order to take a little bit of the sting out of this Rachel Leah thing and Yaakov uh, marrying them, the Bechor Shor, whose approach in several places is the Avot kept the Torah exactly. In the, in the story, when the three visitors come to Avram's tent, um, they, uh, they, Avram serves them Chorshur says in that order because, of course, you could not give him Chalav after Bakar because Avram kept the mitzvot. And in the same way, the Chorshur here says something that will complicate our situation even more. He says that Rachel and Leah had to be from two different wives. Leah, Laban had two wives. Rachel is the daughter of one, Leah is the daughter of the other. And he says the reason is because in the rules of B'nai Noach, paternal sisters are not a prohibition. Paternal siblings could even marry each other. And therefore, um, that's why Yaakov was allowed to marry them. Now, this is a complex issue, which is, well, if he kept the Torah, shouldn't the standards of what defines siblinghood be maintained later? That's a, a complex issue which we don't have time to engage in. But notice the Bechoshar goes in that direction, which, again, complicates things further, because not only are Rachel and Leah sisters, who, as he said, as Bechoshar said in Vayikra, have natural love for each other, and now you've created enmity, but perhaps they don't even have that natural love. Maybe they're already coming from enmity because they're coming from two different mothers. So this problem of polygamy in the household, and children from different wives, and the squabbling that goes on already goes one generation back, perhaps. The relationship between Rachel and Leah, and what happens, seems to be the explanation, I believe, for what we say in Haggadah. Meaning, and we're ascribing to Lavan something that maybe he didn't intend at the beginning, but we're contra- he was doing it to set up the the Rador, the notion that this attempt to destroy us is is even predates Paro. And that is that Lavan, by negotiating, by wheedling, however he did it, to get Yaakov to marry two sisters was a recipe for self-destruction. Important to note that in in our understanding of the Haggadah, but now looking back at the story of Rachel and Leah, both marrying Yaakov, and again the approach that Rachel was in on it, and Rachel um, understood she was really the desired wife, 
but that the, you know she didn't want her sister to be embarrassed, etc., is again kind of challenged from this passage later on in uh, in this week's parasha and the famous story of the dudaim flowers, the mandrakes that Ruvain goes out. Ruvain, the oldest child, goes out and picks these mandrakes, brings them to Leah. Are they aphrodisiacs? Are they fertility uh, believed to help fertility? He brings them to Leah. And now, Vayelech Ruvain, source 15. We make tzirchitim by imsad dudaim basadeh. And the word dudaim is very likely related to dod, beloved. By Tam Eliyahim, he brings them to Leah, his mother. Atom Rachel Eliyah, t'ninan li So Rachel kind of demands, because na in Tanakh means now, give me now some of your son's flowers. Now watch what Leah says. Atom Eliyah, it's not enough you took my husband, now you're taking my son's flowers. Now, of course, it's a strange conversation. Just taking the husband is a huge thing, and flowers we think of as insignificant. Maybe they didn't think they were so insignificant. But notice what Leah says. Is it not enough that you took my husband? Which means that Leah certainly thinks that she was the one promised to Yaakov, or the one supposed to marry Yaakov. And that then Rachel, by agreeing to come in as a second wife, has been carping in on this, on this relationship and hurting the relationship. By the way, Rachel does not have an answer here. Rachel doesn't say, really, he's my husband. Really, uh, you know, you were done a favor here. She doesn't say that, which again supports the idea that neither one of them was aware of what was supposed to happen that night and that Yaakov really expected it to be Rachel. In any case, what does Rachel answer back? All right, I'll negotiate and I'll give you my night with Yaakov in lieu of the flowers. And that's what happens. And that, of course, leads to the Yisachar. Now, how does that all develop. So as we know, it develops very badly. Yosef, who is the child of Rachel, who is beloved by Yaakov, again, go back to the Parshan Dvarim about uh, Ben Ha'uva and Ben Asnua. And Yaakov favors him and makes him the, the cloak, and the brothers hate him. And it's kind of understandable when they hate him. I'm not trying to justify it, but it's understandable. Here's a, a boy who is favored. He's not the oldest, and he's favored because Father loves his dear mother who passed away, giving birth to his little brother. And father can't stop mourning for her. And now he's showered all of his affection on this kid. In the meantime, the rest of us are schlepping, we're working, and we're not being favored. And notice uh, the Pasuk Dalad. Now this Vaisnuoto is not a question of less, less preferred. This is hatred. The brothers can't even speak peaceably to him because they hate him so much because father favors him. And again, the issue of jealousy, the issue of favoritism, the issue of being the one not favored always creates enmity, which is why two wives is a problem. And now what happens in the next generation? And watch Rob's famous statement here, putting the blame of the entire Shibuni tribe at the feet of Yaakov and his parenting. Never favor one kid over the others. Why? Because of that bit of material that Yaakov gave to Yosef, the cloak. His brothers got jealous of him. One thing led to the other. And we all went, ended up in Mitzrayim as slaves. And think about it. We all ended up in Mitzrayim only because Yosef got thrown in the pit and got sold. 
Why the brothers sold him, why they didn't get there in time, and the Miganim sold him. He got sold. He ended up as a slave, ended up as viceroy in Egypt. Now that he's in a position of power, when the family comes down to Egypt to get food, they naturally stay there because Yosef is in charge. And one thing turns, so from being part of the elite, 1% of the society, as you see at the end of Ayigash, by the time we get to the beginning of Shemot, they've suddenly, things have turned and they are enslaved as state slaves. So that all starts with Yosef getting sold, which all started because of favoring one son, which all started because of having two wives, which by definition, you're going to like one more than the other. And the and the child of the wife that you like more is not the Bechor, and you favor him nonetheless. And what would have happened had Yosef been the Bechor, and, and Yaakov would have favored him more, would have been different? We don't know. This is the way things played out, and they played out very badly. And now we see, this is sort of the recipe, if you will, for disunity. The recipe for disunity is creating a circumstance which is not thought out, and which is going to lead, or perhaps you're not you don't aren't given the choice in it, but a circumstance which is going to lead to hatred, a circumstance that will lead to jealousy, a circumstance where somebody is going to not see his or her own commitment and portion as being a part of the whole where he has to contribute, but rather as being threatened by the other and has to set for himself his own place and to negate the other. And that's what happens in a situation. You could roll it back and say it all starts with Leah, uh, with Levan and, and what he did. Where do things change? Because things do change. So there was a picture that, um, that I have in my head from a few weeks, from a couple months ago already, it's a month and a half. I think we were all aware of the, um, the noble attempt that was successful in previous years to have a public tefillah in the streets of Tel Aviv on Yom Kippur for, I think, called and Nila. And the fact that this year, because of the attempt to have a Rechitza put up and the Iriyah say no, etc., it led to some achloket in the pictures that I'm sure most of us saw of the fighting going on in the streets on Yom Kippur between Jews about the Rechitza, about the presence there, etc., was just really horrifying. Somebody juxtaposed a video of that with a video from less than two weeks later of some of the same people on both sides, as it were, and it's harsh to talk about sides, but it was, working together and packing boxes for Hialeah and for, and for residents of the South who had been evacuated. It was a very powerful statement, a very powerful picture, but it's something that's not new. When you take a look at the family structure, you see, for instance, uh, here in the, in, when, when the family is all settled in Hebron, that Yosef is hanging out with B'nai Vilha and B'nai Zilpah. Who is he not hanging out with? He's not hanging out with B'nai Leah. Ruven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, we're not sure about Yisachar and Zulum, but those four are on their own. They are the ones who go up to Shechem, they're the ones who are shepherding up there. Right? Likely, it's Shimon, Levi, Ruven, Yehuda are explicitly there. And Yosef, who was he able to play with or to hang out with, is the ones who are considered to be lesser kids because their mothers are not full wives. They are B'nai Shvachot, B'nai Bilhan, B'nai Zilpah. When you take a look 
again, during those relatively peaceful times, and this is a little bit earlier in the text, when the first genealogy of the family is presented, towards the end of Aishlach, just before the genealogy of Esau that we saw, it records as follows, In perfect chiastic fashion, Leah, Rachel, Rachel, Leah, but notice how they're divided. They're not reckoned by age order, necessarily, not, not by age order. They are not reckoned even by household, because Leah should then have the Zilpah kids with her, but rather by the status. Leah is separate, Rachel is separate, Zilpah is separate, and Zilpah is separate. However, when we get to the near the beginning of Pashatni case, when the famine is set in, what happens? The ten sons of Yosef come down to Mitzrayim. Yosef, of course, not there. And Benjamin is too young to go, or father's favorite, and that hasn't been fixed yet. But the ten of them go down together. And this very likely is what sparked Yosef's first interest when they saw them coming down, that the ten of them are together. That that separation that existed in the household has somehow been melted away. Why did they all come down together? It's a very simple answer. They were in trouble. They were in trouble. They were in famine. And as shepherds, that affected their livelihood, affected their flocks, affected their own food. They have children, grandchildren, perhaps, and they got to take care of them. An interesting thing happens when the brothers come back the second time. Remember, they return to Egypt three times. The first time they come down, they return twice. They return, come the first time, this is Asara. Then they come back the next time with Benjamin. And then they have this meal we're going to look at in a minute. And then on the way out, they're caught, and they come back a third time, and that's where the famous standoff of, of Yehuda against Yosef is, and Yosef reveals himself, etc. In the in that middle time, when they come in, and Yosef re- re- releases Shimon, and Benjamin is there, Yosef seats them at the table, and clearly it's not their intent, nor do they identify themselves as such, but by he, he seats them in age order. Age order. Not by household. Which means it's Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yudah, Dan, Naftali, God, Asher, Yisar, Zachar, Zvulun, Binyamin. Now, maybe he hasn't come around, so Binyamin's next to him. But nonetheless, they're surprised. They're kind of surprised. Now, the first obvious reason they'd be surprised, how does Yosef, how does this wizard know what order we're born in? Perhaps they've also never even seen themselves that way. It's really no opinion I mean there, as being simply a family of all the children of Yaakov. And uh, the most natural order of sin is, is in by age, not because of what mother we come from, etc. And so it seems like this is the key to starting to fix things. Now, after that, when Yosef reveals himself, he has the family come down and look at the count of the family that comes down, how they're presented. There's a whole presentation of B'nai Le'ah. And afterwards, B'nai Zilpah. Which means one rift has been healed, seemingly, which is the children of the Shvachot and the children of the Mahot are no longer considered to be separate. It's not like first class and second class. It's the house of Le'ah and the house of Rachel. Now, by this time, uh, Le'ah and Rachel are both gone. Um, but uh, the house of Le'ah and the house of Rachel, Yaakov is still alive. And the same thing, Rachel and Bilhah are considered together. They come down to Egypt, remember, during difficult times. There's hope. They're looking forward to having 
a uh, protection and everything else in Mitzrayim. But right now, things are tough. Watch what happens at the beginning of Shemot when they're counted again. When they're counted again, and this is from a perspective of, say, for Shemot, where they've already been in Mitzrayim for a while, they've had several generations born there, and they are among the elite. This is just before everything crashes. What happens? And separately, separately, we have the we've shifted back to that two-class, kind of two-tiered system. Looking at all of this and the history of unity, disunity, however you want to describe this tiered system in the family, where there are the haves and the have-nots, or they have more and they have less, or the ahuva and the snua. It's clear that, that the challenge that we face is when things are good, when things are fine. And we suddenly think that we have room to disagree about things, to have one upsmanship, etc. When things are tough, we all draw together. And that's how it should be. And this is not to argue that when that we should always be drawn together in the same way and never have any disagreements. Of course not. In a healthy society, you have disagreements and you have ideals, and your ideals might not jive with the other person's ideals. And there are reasons to try to challenge each other and persuade each other. And even down the show, you don't dominate. it. Not to de- not to defame it, but say I prefer dominating in that show. I prefer dominating in Nusach. Nothing wrong with that. But there's a far cry from that to the kind of disunity that we have seen described here of the actual hatred within the family. The, the challenges are something that we've seen documented in front, in front of us over this court last hour. The challenges of unity. And the, the thing that ultimately brings us together is the challenge from the outside, the threat from the outside, where we see that ultimately we are one, and ultimately, we need to take care of each other. And every one of those differences is relatively small compared to that which binds us together and that which is the existential reality of who we are as Am Yisrael, one family. So I want to end by going back to the beginning, the beginning of the Shiloh. I pointed out that in the Haggadah, we have this line near the beginning of the Haggadah, uh, before the form four of the Magi gets started. And we quote the Psukim. And as I said, the mainstream approach to understanding it is the Hisham Dalavatenu or Hisham Dalvatenu. Balana, the promise that stood for us is the Gamatagoyashanoch. That God will punish and judge the nation that, that enslaves us, will leave it great wealth, etc. That's what stood for us. The Nitziv, sitting from his perch in Eastern Europe at the end of the 19th century, watching what happened, what was happening in Central Europe, in his commentary on Haggadah, had a different approach. The Nitziv said, you know what's Hisham Galavotenu That wherever we go, we're going to be strangers. They will always have an awareness that the outside looks askance at us in good times, looks with enmity at us in worse times, and looks with savagery at us in, in the worst of times. 
He said, that is the saving grace. That is Hisham Dalabotengu Our awareness that we are always on the Badad And and that whatever respites we get where there is a sense of a good feeling on the outside, there's every once in a while a poke to remind us of that. Of course, the big challenge, the big challenge for us, all of us, is to be able to take that wondrous, amazing, miraculous almost sense of unity and common purpose that we feel throughout the Jewish world, that we say the committed Jewish world, by committed, I say committed to Jewish peoplehood, no matter what the religious orientation, that the committed Jewish world has embraced fully during this period and to take it and find a way in order to have that course through our dialogue, our disagreements, our state building, our community building from now on. So that we never again see images as we saw this past summer and the images that we see of working together should not only be in response to war, but just in response to living. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yashkin Shalom Be'artzeinu Yilachem Alamov Yalatso and it should bring all of our chayalina from back safely and we should indeed see a full Yeshua soon. Uh, it was a pleasure studying with you and let's indeed see me'afilah le'orah let's see days of great light and great love together in Israel.